Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Market Impact Insights. You know, customer success and outstanding customer experiences are the core of any growing company. And research shows just how important this is. 80% of customers say they're more likely to do business with the company if it offers personalized experiences and increasing customer retention rates. And we know how important that is in a highly competitive marketplace. If you can do that by just 5%. You can boost profits anywhere from 25 to 95%. So incredible impact on financial performance and growth. And I'm really excited to have a, a passionate advocate for customer success joining today to really get underneath what is at the heart of delivering outstanding customer success programs. He's done this uh, in a variety of different high-impact companies. Faraz Rashid, he's the CEO and founder of Hook, the predictive data platform that empowers customer success teams. Hook is transforming B2B SaaS by providing accurate revenue predictions and intelligent, actionable insights to secure renewals. And in a subscription business, that's what it's all about. Faraz founded Hook in late 2020, that's right, during the pandemic, and raised multi-million dollars in funding from some of the most prestigious investors and company founders in Europe. He's passionate about changing the way customer success is run and about building the leading workplace for ambitious people who want to be part of a team. Before founding Hook, Veras was CTO and head of customer success in EMEA at AppDynamics, scaling from $170 million to more than $550 million in annual recurring revenue in just two years. He led a rapid journey of rebuilding customer success to focus on data-driven prioritization and scale. Prior to that, he was a director of IT at Credit Suisse and has a wealth of experience as a accomplished leader of people and teams and delivering exceptional customer success programs. Veras, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Thanks, Dan. Uh, great, uh, Great to speak to you and thanks a lot for having me on. So really want to go back. Uh, You've had this interesting journey in building your own company, but what sparked that jump to being an entrepreneur? Was it always part of your life plan? It's funny. I think that I always had entrepreneurial traits. I mean, my dad ran his own business and and he came from uh, an upbringing which was uh, quite entrepreneurial, but very different. He grew up on a farm in, in Pakistan and then moved to the UK and ran a wholesale trading business. Um, but even when I was very young, I was 12 years old when I started my first online business, which was actually a website where you could text message other people uh, for a quarter of the price that it would cost at that time, because I'd found a gateway through um, a, a company called Clickatel at that time that was actually a startup. And um, we had our first paying customer and we actually had to stop. I, I did this with, a, with an online friend. We had to stop because uh, we got hacked. Uh, and then 
as I got into my career, for me, it was really important to gain experience and to be able to have a backup plan if, if things went wrong on riskier careers. And so I spent a few years in banking running IT and, uh, and then spent some time uh, a scale-up app dynamics because I felt that it would teach me a lot about how to run businesses later. Um, and interestingly, I was described then as an intrapreneur, so someone who would uh, drive change within those companies. And, um, and, and what I enjoyed doing at Credit Suisse was figuring out how we, we could make teams more efficient, i.e. do more with the same people, uh, while still maintaining a really high uh, productivity rate with, with the work that we're doing. Um, and, you know, as I'm sure we'll cover at AppDynamics, a big part of my job was was to rebuild the CS function. So, yeah, I guess I've always had it in me. And then there was a day that I woke up and, and said this was the time to do it. <laughs> the inspiration, the light bulb went off and growing a company is never easy. Have there been any real surprises for you along the way? I think there's been a lot. Um, and I would have to... You know, I could sit and probably talk for an hour about all of the mistakes that we've been made. But if I had to narrow it down on a, on a couple of things that I think we did wrong and then we did well. Uh, firstly, I think everyone can get a little bit obsessed with growth and and hiring. And I think at the right time, that's important. But the thing that we learned was in the earliest days of building a company that is building a product, it's actually really important to keep things small. Because when we hired too quickly into new functions or into, uh, you know, into products or into other areas, or we hired too quickly into our engineering team. The problem in the, in the earliest days of building something is that what you're actually doing is fastly iterating with a very, very strong hypothesis of what you think customers want. And the last thing that you want in, that, in doing that is that you've got too many different opinions that are dragging you in a different direction. Uh, and so um, we kept things small. We did at times kind of grow fast and, and, and then we, we, we slowed down in order to capture up with that. But we, we kept things really small so that we could, we could build tightly with our customers and with a very strong and informed opinion. The other thing that, um, the next thing that I think was really important is that we have made mistakes on hiring people into jobs that we didn't understand. And I, I'm pretty sure any founder on, on here will, I've uh, gone through the same thing. Um, and without going too specific into those examples, the problem with doing that is that you actually, without having done the job and without having figured out the problem, it's hard to know exactly what type of person you need. And that doesn't matter whether it's an engineer or a data person or a product person, you need different people for different stages. And I think that when we got things really right in hiring, we deeply dove into the problem and tried to do the job and use that to learn what the gaps were, both in terms of bandwidth and in terms of expertise. So to give you a positive example, we, um, on the sales side, uh, made sales a problem that I was dealing with, as lo- along with a, a, a colleague who I brought over from AppDynamics and my head of operations. We kind of spent about 20% of each of our jobs learning how to sell. So we learned how to write sequenced emails. We learned how to build business case decks. And we closed the first few deals ourselves before we went out and hired people. And it meant when we hired, we knew exactly what we wanted our SDRs to be doing because we'd done it and we'd done it with success. And we recently brought in a sales leader and it became really clear the type of personality and the approach that we wanted to build. And so it, we went into that with a much more informed uh, informed opinion. Um, I think the biggest surprise for me is 
Uh, I always had people question whether being a solo founder was a good idea. So whether it was investors or peers or other people. And I've always been naturally someone who's quite independent. And when I've had jobs that um, I've done uh, in my previous career, I've always been someone who has a strong independent opinion and, and kind of gets people's buy-in and takes them along. So I wasn't too worried about needing the emotional support side of having a co-founder. But the thing I found really difficult is as a solo founder, when you start a, a, a company pre-product, the hardest bit is, is that you are being dragged in every direction. Um, you're the person who has to sell. You have to build a product. You have to recruit everyone. You have to deal with every problem that you've got to do. And frankly, that included things like, you know, in, in month five of our existence, I was running payroll in the back of a taxi between customer meetings. And what I very quickly learned was how important it was to develop leaders internally. And so um, we started to delegate a lot more, a lot quicker into people like my head of operations. And we started to, in the sales side, really think about bringing in a more senior leader than we perhaps needed at that time, because what what I needed was someone who would help drive culture within the company and own much more than just a much, much more than just a number. So I think that, yeah, those would be the things that are standout moments for me so far. Yeah, I love what you were talking about there in terms of having the discipline and the patience uh, that uh, and gaining that functional hands-on experience or perspective so that you could make the better decisions. And I, it, there's just so much pressure. It's like the, the perception that bigger is better in terms of, hey, hire more heads, just go do it. Speed is what it's all about. And what you're saying is, um, have some discipline um, uh, to do things in its proper time, in the proper order, and really be playing the long game, not chasing after a short game. Yeah. And if you are looking to hire, it's much better to wait until you have some of the pain that that person would solve and you've experienced it. Because if you do that, you have a really, really, really strong view of what that pain is. It's tempting to hire earlier and we've done it. And the challenge is, is that you can hire the wrong person because it can transpire that actually the skills that you need specifically in your business are different. And you didn't know that at the time that you were hiring. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Now, you've led a lot of large organizations inside these bigger companies, but now you've, you've been building your own growing business. You're building the teams out. As a leader, what do you think really separates exceptional leadership from just good enough? I, whether it's controversial or not, I believe that good leaders have got to have a really good understanding of the jobs that their team are doing. And I don't think that means that you've got to be the best at doing that job. Um, I don't think I'm a great seller, uh, but, I, but I have got enough experience on the sales side to understand how to lead a VP of sales. And at the time, you know, until we hired that person, how we, how we lead SDRs. And I think it's really important to be able to do that and also to be able to do that job hands-on. So in my job at Credit Suisse in, in App Dynamics, I was always happy and ready to jump in hands-on into problems because without that experience and without doing that, it's actually very difficult to know what changes you need to make within your team or your company um, because you have a misinformed opinion or a, or a different opinion uh, without, without doing that. So firstly, I think great leaders are great doers. That doesn't need, mean to say that the best doers are the, are, are the best leaders. I enjoy people leadership because I enjoy seeing how people change and I enjoy following them along that journey. 
I often say when when I have the first people that I promote to management that the great thing is they don't need to worry about uh, 80% of their job because 80% of a manager's job is common sense and you could walk into any pub or bar and ask someone for advice and that random person will probably give you the right answer about about the problem. The real challenge is what are the 20% of situations that come up that end up consuming a really big portion of your time and often those are related to difficult team members or underperforming team members uh, and how do you go and solve those out? And I've naturally been good at that, although it can be very difficult and I've really enjoyed seeing the results off the off the other side. Um, I think in the earliest days of a startup, the one thing I would add is having people that are detail-oriented is not just important. It's really critical. Um, I know Jason Lemkin actually recently wrote a post about this where he said, um, if you think that your founder's being picky because they know when you turn up to late every morning and um, they know uh, when the smallest level of detail is wrong within your product, they're not being picky. That's how startups die. And I feel that um, more strongly than I ever do, which is I have a really kind of deep view of a lot of what's going on in in different teams. And the best people within uh, my group that are leaders have the same view. And so I think being able to understand the detail is incredibly important because frankly, as a startup, it's the detail that differentiates you. That's what your incumbents and the larger companies can't get into and can't change quick enough and that's the opportunity that that you have. Yeah, it's really striking the right balance. And we're not talking about micromanaging. It's about having visibility to the details because not that any one thing necessarily is a defining moment, but it's attention to the details. And then those add up in, in detail after detail after detail. So it's really just having that um, attention really and the engagement uh, as a senior leader in the organization that's so important. Yeah, it's funny. We had a recent example, actually. We just have done a couple of conferences and we uh, we got the first set of mock-ups back for everything on our conference um, portfolio. And it turned out that the design company, who are amazing, by the way, had inadvertently got the color of of um, our branding wrong. And it was we have a very bright fluorescent yellow branding and they'd ended up um, mismatching that for print. And Thankfully, I'd caught it just before, um, and I'll tell you, it's it, you you know everything that's wrong with your logo when you spent thousands of dollars out of your own pocket on building it. Um, and what we actually, I, I caught it, and we still weren't sure whether or not it's right, and we ended up sending it off for sample prints uh, through an online print company to see what it would turn out at, and it was actually radically wrong. And, and funnily enough, we managed to fix it in time, and once we got to the conference, um, the yellow color was the thing that uh, stood out because it matched these fluorescent yellow t-shirts that my team was wearing and a bunch of other stuff that we're doing. And it's funny because this tiniest level of detail about a conversion code to CMYK that you'd think wouldn't be important could have been a kind of a pretty big make or break for our first public presence as a, as a brand. So um, yeah, totally on the detail. Yeah. It's called just in time branding. I love that example. (laughs) And um, now the other thing that is just so important in any young company is establishing a healthy and a sustainable culture. What have been the keys for you to be able to do that? Yeah, I started Hook primarily because I wanted to build a team that um, that I was responsible for and, and 
uh, could own and shape the culture of the of the company. And so it could be somewhere that I wanted to work in in 10 years time. And there's two things I care about more than anything else. I find myself very ambitious and very focused on work. But at the same time, I really like working in teams. And I found generally that working environments can swing between one or the other. So they can be team oriented or they can be um, individual ambition oriented. And I wanted to build a workplace that catered for those. So the people that are really hardworking, but like to care for other people and want to do so as, as part of a team. So we focused very much on hiring individuals that show that aspect. And we, we especially on the team side, we don't really allow any deviation from that. Um, as part of that, what I found works really well is um, the, the worst thing that you can do when things aren't working out within a team is, is to hold back and um, to see things, uh, uh, see how things go. And I think what we do well as a business and as a team is we're transparent with each other in a respectful way and we'll call things out early um, when things don't seem right. And I think that's really important because if you already think that there might be challenges, you know, whether it's with um, behavior or whether it's with performance or whether it's with delivery, the chances are you've already gone past the point of where you should have said something. And, and often people don't out of, out of courtesy or because it's difficult. Uh, and I think it's important. And I, I'm really happy that we've created an organization where that also means me being called out because it means that I know that something's a problem way before it starts to become a much bigger problem. Um, we focus a lot on well-being and time outside of work. So whilst we want people that work hard, what I found was important was to create an environment of like safety and happiness for them. So all of our benefits that we offer are wellness related. And we also focus on getting people out of the office by, by six o'clock. Uh, and then also controversially, given the wider uh, debate, which seems to get more heated by the day on flexible working, we have always believed in an in-person culture. So I believe in flexibility and, you know, people uh, spend two or three days a week working from um, home or working from other places. But for me, it was re really important that if we had people who are ambitious and they were part of a team, that um, they would want to spend time with other people like themselves. Uh, so I actually got an office lease in the middle of lockdown to make that commitment. And, um, you know, we've recently moved into a, a, a new office, which is a, a dedicated space for us with our own breakout areas and, and so on. And we find that um, it starts to create a really strong bond within the team and a bond that is very genuine. Certainly for me, I find that um, it's a lot easier to uh, enjoy work when you can share stories of how difficult your week was at Friday at 7 p.m. in the pub. Uh, and a lot more difficult when, um, you know, doing that would need a Zoom meeting and stuff set up. Um, and we've kind of taken this as a, a, as a real core part of our culture. So a couple of weeks ago, we sponsored um, Sasta in Barcelona. We'd got the team kind of shaped up that was going to go out there. It was seven or eight people. And I realized that that meant that there would be a bunch of people that were sat in the office that would probably be sat watching WhatsApp clips of um, you know, various things that were happening at Sasta. So we made the decision to actually fly our whole team out and made it a, a team event. And that was really impactful because spending that amount of time in an intense space in a really hard working scenario, you know, it's the first time we're public, it's the first time we're pitching face to face. Um, we're still in our early days, you know, we're only uh, 16, 17 months into building this company. 
um, brought people back uh, and uh, like really close. And also it meant that when we came back to the office, there was like significantly more energy for everyone because they they had kind of lived and breathed this special moment with uh, with with the team. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And if you're trying to create norms around culture, right, it would seem to be a lot easier if you at least have that periodic in-person time, right, and the interaction and the relationship building and the trust that you create, right? It just seems to just build momentum behind that. Yeah, and you can do a lot of things that you can't do if you are remote. For example, we generally don't have meetings uh, internally. So what we generally do is say, if we need to discuss something, we'll just discuss it one-on-one ad hoc. And that's much easier to do uh, in in person. And uh, once you've met in person, it's also much easier to do via phone call on things like um, WhatsApp. But what we try and avoid is that, you know, people have got seven or eight hours of back-to-back meetings discussing something that is a five-minute thing. And um, and as you say, those are much easier when there's when there's deeper trust within the um the the team yeah there's tools and technology uh, coming into play again well you're all about developing and delivering outstanding customer success but there are some data challenges some data problems that can get in the way can you talk a little bit about that yeah i think i think it's clear to everybody in the industry that customer success is becoming more data driven and in a lot of companies needs to become more data driven and there are common challenges that people face when they uh, they try to do this. So um, there's probably three common challenges that people talk about. The first is it's really difficult to get access to the data. And when I ask my product team for it, they say that they can't help me out because they're too busy building things for the product because the CEO said that's the important thing to sell a product. The second thing that people say is that when they do have the data, all of a sudden they now have... Uh, set of graphs and they might have a health score uh, for customers, which is like a six out of 10 or a one out of 10 for most customers. But it's really difficult to make sense of that data and to know what they need to do about it. And then the third problem that they have is that when they then do things relating to the data, it's really hard to measure the effect of that and then to relate it to revenue. So to say, we saw that this customer was showing these problems, therefore we did this. And that's the effect that it had and customer success should get the credit. Now, I've been on that journey myself and at AppDynamics, we ended up starting with a spreadsheet where we literally wrote down every account, wrote down whether it churned, renewed or upselled and built a column that said what was the percentage of licenses that they had and what was the number of users that they had at that point. And we found a direct correlation, which showed that if people renewed or upsold with us, they had 57% on average of their licenses consumed. If they churned, they were at 29%. And so we immediately were able to say, well, let's start with adoption as our first metric. And that gave the whole customer success organization a lot of power because people were able to say, I know what your number is and I know how your number relates to um, re- relates to revenue. And more importantly, your number is not owned by anyone else. So if you do a renewal, Sales don't get the credit for it. You, it's clear the value that you've added. Um, the challenge we faced at AppDynamics was then how do we go further beyond that? And we ended up spending about $4 million on data science. So I brought in a team that I'd worked with at my previous job. And we built um, a whole set of machine learning algorithms that was able to accurately predict 
whether or not a customer was would renew. The problem is this cost several million dollars and then it also made it actionable. And that ultimately led me to starting Hook where we kind of do all of this outside of the box for people and we do it within a few days uh, and um, we don't charge millions of dollars in order to make that happen. Wow, bringing the power of uh, being able to predict and, and doing that in a cost-effective way. Uh, very, very compelling and, and very uh, critical for success. And we're in really volatile uh, economic times right now. But you've actually said this is a real opportunity for growth and innovation for companies. How is that? Yeah, the, I, the some of the best companies come about during a recession. Um, my last company, App Dynamics, was we were acquired by Cisco for $3.5 billion. Uh, you see companies like uh, WhatsApp, like Airbnb, and a whole host of, of um, successful unicorns that, that came out of recessions. And part of that is because of the, the what happens economically during and, and after a recession. So, um, you know, as we're seeing things right now, we're seeing the, the, the bad part of the recession, which is um, interest rates are going up and things are becoming more expensive. But immediately after that point, once the economy starts to settle, what you actually find is that everything gets a lot cheaper. So it's cheaper to borrow money. There's more capital available in places and it's... Um, uh, cheaper to do uh, to do business, and the reason for that is that you start to get a lot more government stimulus, and we'll start to see that coming once we're past the the kind of hump that we're we're seeing. But the more important thing is that recessions are cyclical, and we know that a recession happens every eight to ten years. So the exciting thing about people that are starting and building their companies right now, um, particularly if you're in the very early stages of revenue, is that after this you've got eight to ten years of high growth coming and um, you're much better off starting a company knowing that it's very unlikely for you to have a recession in the next eight to 10 years than some of the companies that maybe started three or four years ago were on that high growth journey. And then suddenly there's been a mass change in the way that um, capital is available and how people spend money uh, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I think there is also an advantage that people have that start companies now which is um, you actually have a much more realistic view of some of the problems that happen in businesses. Uh, I started my career in 2008. Um, that was in the middle of the financial crisis. My first job was for an investment bank for Credit Suisse. Uh, we had to get bailed out by the Swiss National Bank. And you know we watched the scenes of uh, Lehman Brothers being shut down um, hours after people said that there was no problem with the financial crisis. And it really taught you a strong lesson about being cautious with how to build businesses and how to manage money. I think um, the unfortunate thing is there's been a whole set of companies and people that haven't had that experience. And perhaps their only norm that they knew was a market where uh, capital was very freely available and, and, and profitability wasn't in, important. Um, and so I think, I think there, there are people that start now have a good foundational base to start from because they will have to come up with more sustainable measures for growth and just using you know freely available uh, freely available venture capital. Yeah, and as we all go through those inevitable cycles of uh, ups and downs and seeing the downside, but coming through the other end, as you were describing there, seems like that would build a lot of confidence to have successfully weathered the storm, come through and just know that this is just part of a natural cycle. Uh, it comes in cycles and then just get ready to take full advantage uh, and break away 
in uh, in the next um, strong market, right? As opposed to the right. downturn. Yeah. Right. Was- and and you know, there's there's absolute proof that that happens because we saw we saw saw it in 2001, we saw it in 2008, uh, and that lasted a couple of years. We've now seen the 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 cycle happen again now, and I think that the cause of the cycle was was quite obvious, which is there there was a a massive uh, you know printing of money across the world to help people come out of COVID. So um, for sure, you know the the exciting thing is that we're about to come out of that within the next kind of you know ten to eighteen months, and that gives us an amazing opportunity for for, for growing businesses. Well, now you give advice all the time. Uh, people come to you and they want visionary uh, leadership. But I want to flip things around for us and ask you, what is the best piece of business advice you have received? Uh, I'm going to give two two of these. So the first is was actually a, an article that our old CEO at my first job at Credit Suisse wrote. And the advice that he gave was the most successful people in companies are those that can go into a team and change it because it's easy to do a job. It's very hard to be able to um, go and figure out a job and, and to change an organization. And those people are always in high demand. And it reinforced a lot of what I did at that job and following and, you know, ultimately um, building your own company in a, in a new category is effectively, you know, the, the same, but at a different pace. And I would really strongly encourage people to have that view that, you know, that their roles and their, their companies are not about leaving the lights on, but they're around what, what changes can they drive? Um, in my career, I, I always kind of sat down every year and said, there's going to be two or three big ticket items that I'm going to find. And I'm going to focus on those because it's enjoyable. And it also gives me challenge. And, the, and they were also recognized by managers because any leader is going to going to um, promote and give bigger challenges to those that can succeed at them. Uh, the second piece of advice I had was actually very recently, it was, uh, it was last year, as we were trying to figure out what to do in terms of raising capital, uh, I remember speaking to one of our investors, uh, someone called Matt Robinson, who is the founder and CEO at both um, GoCardless and then at Nested.com. Uh, so those are, are two of the largest startups in in Europe. And his advice uh, when I was asking about how we should optimize for uh, fundraising was businesses are bought and not sold. And so what's important is to make sure that you're not optimizing for a message to sell your business. I uh, That's the way to get capital from VCs. But more importantly, that you're focused internally on how do you make sure that you're building a business that is attractive to buy? Therefore, get some of your basic metrics right on which customers are you acquiring? How are you focusing on revenue? What, how are you optimizing for, um, uh, for being able to turn that into profit and, and that those numbers add up? And I think that's really important because it's easy as a founder to get stuck into the idea that you have to build relationships with VCs and, and you have to, um, kind of perfect your pitch and that's the way to build a great business. Actually, it's not. The great way to build a great business is to get the basics right. Uh, and that in itself will will sell your business or make it attractive to be bought. Yeah. How many times have we heard the phrase focus on the fundamentals? That's really what you're talking about there is um, getting things um, right, getting things optimized uh, and really just striving for excellence in everything you do. 
Exactly. Yeah. So we talked a little bit earlier about positioning for future success. When you look at the future and you think about uh, the opportunities, what makes you optimistic? I talked about the upturn kind of post-recession. I think that's for any founder out there, for anyone working in a in a in a growing business, that's exciting because that will that will give us amazing opportunities to be able to grow and take advantage of market of market growth. I would also say that the um, my personal excitement is um, we're, we're based in London, and I remember when I when I first went to San Francisco ten years ago, I was sat having. Uh, breakfast in the hotel and there was uh, there was a guy sat next to me that was pitching a VC and I remember thinking at the time how amazing it was to be in this world in San Francisco where uh, this was the norm I've been obsessed with tech since I was I was young as I've talked about before I've always wanted to do entrepreneurial things and I think the amazing thing that I've seen in the last kind of three or four years is that has become also the norm in London and in Europe so You've seen this huge growth of investment in Europe. You've seen amazing startups and unicorns like um, TransferWise and um, Klarna and and uh, Payhawk come out of Europe. And that has meant that that's got a cyclical effect because people come out of those companies and start to drive their own startups. And interestingly, most recently, I've met founders in uh, my gym changing room. Um, I've met them in... Um, bars. I've had lunch sat outside a cafe, and there's been VCs talking about um, driving uh, an increase in in the number of LPs they've got sat next to me. And so I'm really excited about the opportunity London's got and Europe has got as we kind of start to become this huge tech hub uh, in in the world. Always be ready. You never know when that critical conversation is going to come up. Um, yeah, great examples there. So uh, for us. Uh, as you are thinking about driving continuous growth and delivering even better customer experiences, do you have any other final advice for business leaders on how they can achieve that success? Yeah, I would say you've got to focus on maximizing your outcomes from your existing customers. And business leaders tend to deprioritize that. And in order to do that, you need to figure out how you can use data to do it. So People use loads of data in the sales process and it can be very predictable to run a sales machine. Companies tend to be very bad at using data in the post-sales process, but the problem is that makes your operation inefficient because uh, you end up with a very expensive uh, route to recovering customers. So I would say focus on data, make sure that you're focused on maximizing your existing customers and find what the leading indicators are for making that happen. Some very timely advice. Well, for us, thanks again for joining, sharing your journey, your passion for customer success and how companies can achieve true breakaway advantage if they make the right decisions and they invest wisely. Awesome. Thank you very much, Dan, for having me on. And a reminder to everyone, please continue to give the gift of feedback to rate and review this podcast. Let us know what you think. You can do that very easily on all of the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcast and Spotify. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.